This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. All right. If you can all make your way back to your seats. Um, we only have one announcement today. It's also for anyone who's new. Um, if you're new and you want to find out a little bit more information about Emmaus, um, you want to know more about our structure, what we believe, um, any of that kind of stuff, you can sign up online for Discover Emmaus at EmmausDenver.com discover. Um, and now we will do our scripture reading. Today our scripture reading is from Isaiah 58. Um, only two verses today, so lucky for me. <laughs> um, we're going to read verses 13 and 14 of Isaiah chapter 58. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride in the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. We have a short um, scripture verse, but we're going to basically survey the entire Bible this morning. So I figured it would be harder for Anna to read all 47 of those verses. Um, cool. Let's start with uh, let's start with some prayer. Father, thank you, thank you that you speak to us. Thank you. As has been said so many times this morning, thank you that as a community we can gather, um, not just to enjoy each other, which we do, uh, not just for uh, the, the joy even that comes from singing and from worship, which, which it is joyful, but at the end of the day, we, we want to be here, Lord, so that we can get a sense of you. We want to be here today so that we can be exposed to your presence in ways that we can't by ourselves, Lord. We want... To hear your word, we want to hear your, your saints' worship. We want to gather because we want to experience your presence. So Lord, I pray as we look at this topic of Sabbath, as we talk about what it means to, to stop and to set aside time for you, um, that the, the experience of you would be something that brings rest for everyone here. That the experience of you is something that, that breeds delight in our hearts um, so that so that we desire, so that we long for, so that we crave more and more of your presence. So I thank you for this time and um, give me wisdom as we as we look at what what's kind of a, a complicated topic in some ways, a simple one in some, but a complicated in others. Lord, so give us wisdom as we work through this. In your name, I pray. Amen. I'm excited about this. Um, I want to say it was like eight months ago. I was working like 70-hour weeks and things were just like not healthy for me. And Bridget was like, you should Sabbath. And I'm like, you don't even know what that means. 
And I was like, I don't even know what that means, but I should probably do that, whatever that is. Um, and uh, that kind of kick-started my thinking on the topic because it wasn't something I really grew up with, even in the church. Um, what does it mean to Sabbath? Um, and so for the last probably eight months or so, kind of on and off with increasing and decreasing intensity, depending, I've been reading, I've been studying, I've been just trying to, trying to learn some of the materials about Sabbath. And, and, and honestly, with a, with a two-part series, or part one was basically, uh, how do we think about God's rules? How do we think about the law? Um, now we have one sermon on those last eight months of reading and learning to talk about the, the Sabbath. And so I thought a Q&A after would be good because I'm sure in your mind there's, there's a handful of things that you're wondering. Um, and, you're, and I may not address all of those specific questions, but I, I thought it would be important um, not to give uh, maybe a comprehensive view of, of, of what that looks like or practices. And we're definitely going get to in, get into that stuff, what that, what that could mean for us. Um, but I wanted to get to really kind of the heart of, of the fourth commandment. I wanted, I wanted to kind of get to like the, the, we talked about the rules because I thought it was important to first just say, what is the purpose of God's law? Like, why do we have rules in the first place? And I really like Psalm 119. We, we mentioned that last week. He says, seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. And I, I just think like, there's not a lot of worship songs oriented towards how awesome God's rules are. And maybe Ben knows of them, but I, don't, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't sang a lot of those. And just, you could go through, uh, you know, we could spend a whole summer in Psalm 119. And it's, it's basically uh, multiple ways to talk about how much the psalmist loves God's word, God's rules, God's commandments, God's statutes. About every possible way you could think of, the psalmist is just like, I am obsessed with God's rules. And so last week, we kind of talked about that a little bit. We talked about the idea that the rules actually show us the beauty of what Jesus has done. We, the more we understand about what God requires, the more we understand about God's holiness and the laws that reflect his character, the more we understand the beauty and the wonder of what Jesus actually accomplished. The fact that he lived on this earth for a long time and didn't break a single one of those rules. But we also kind of learned at the same time how often we do break those rules. So it sort of shows us the kind of the, the ugly of our own sin. And this idea that faith is what brings us from a rule breaker as we're united to Jesus, the one who did all of those rules perfectly. Faith is what brings us from one place to the other. And kind of the example that we used was in Matthew 5. And I wanted to just read that real quick. Where we talked about murder. Murder is, um, seems like kind of a low bar, like we haven't murdered, awesome, um, it's a good place to start, but, but the idea is that the rules weren't, the, the law, the rule of do not murder, uh, is just sort of the surface level understanding of that. We're talking about the, the rules actually go deep and, and expose the root of murder, the thing that, that, that is, is at the core that eventually brings out and causes murder. And so listen to what Jesus says as he explains this, one of the 10 laws for us, one of the 10 rules. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And he's quoting the Old Testament there. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother 
will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Amen. It's intense though. Because he's, he's getting to the heart of the rule. He's saying, that, yeah, God has given 10 commands, 10 rules. And sure, murder, not, that's not, that's, don't do that. That's what it says. You've heard it said this. He's like, but murder isn't, isn't ultimately what it's all about. It's about what's going on in the heart. And this, this do not murder is actually exposing, that rule is exposing the fact that what, what be, before murder begins, there's hate. There's people, our, our brothers and sisters, people who are, we're close to that frustrate us. And, and that, that right there is sort of the essence of that law. And he's saying, if you didn't actually hate your brother or sister in your heart, of course, murder wouldn't be a thing. But because God sees deep down into the depths of who you are, every little frustration that comes out, that, that, that may not, doesn't come out for the rest of us to see, but comes out in here, God sees that. God sees that and says, if that wasn't there, then of course you would not murder. And, and it's not just meant to sort of make us feel like we've fallen short. Again, it's also meant to point us to the reality that Jesus perfectly loved his neighbor perfectly loved the disciples, the ones who left him, the ones who betrayed him, the ones he was close to. He never looked at them. The God of the universe that knows all things never looked over at Peter and was like, you idiot. <laughs> he didn't. And, that, and that, that blows our minds to think of how righteous and pure and beautiful Jesus was. And so, so I made that point because the Sabbath is the same thing. It's another rule. Kind of the definition that, I, that we're going to work with today, and we're going to work through some of the scriptures on this, is it's a, it's a seven-day pattern of stopping to make the day holy so we can rest. It's a, it's a seven-day pattern of stopping to make the day holy so that we can rest. And I think just like do not murder, stopping once a week is not what, what the rules are really getting at. Sure, we could do that. That would be great. But, there, but there's something deeper. There's something that, that Jesus is, is trying to impress upon us when we think about the Sabbath. And sure, we could stop weekly and set things apart for God. But at the core of it, deep down... The thing that God is, is actually trying to expose in us is the reality that we delight in him. If we delighted in the very presence of God, just like if we didn't have frustration in our hearts negatively, but if we positively, if we delighted in the very presence of God, we would Sabbath. We would take regular time to stop, set apart time for God, and the result of that is that we would find rest. The result of that is that we would find rest. I think I put the uh, definition of rest on the slide. I don't know if you see that one, Cole. Um, I like that because it was, it's not a word I like think about a lot, but rest is to, to cease work to cease work or movement in order to relax, refresh oneself, or recover strength. 
to cease work or movement or to relax or refresh oneself or recover strength. And we all rest. And we actually all kind of have a Sabbath routine in, in some way, shape, or form. We're willing to stop something, set aside something specific for us so that we can find rest. Give you a good example. Most of us are willing to stop working, to set aside time maybe in the mountains so that we can have rest. We do that because that gives us rest. Some of us are willing to stop a lot of other things going on in our lives to set aside time to clean and organize. <laughs> I know the feeling of that. I'll, set, I'll push stuff away so I can set aside time to reorder my to-do list or clean my house or whatever so that I can have rest. <laughs> have a, have a, it's refreshing to have order. Some of us will stop socializing and set aside me time so that we can have rest. Some of us will do the opposite. <laughs> we'll stop me time to set aside socializing with other people so that we can have rest. We do this in our lives all the time. This is not a, a routine that's sort of unfamiliar to us. But we do that because we're looking to refresh ourselves, whatever it is. We're looking to relax. We're looking to recover strength. We, we're, we're stopping whatever it is that drains us. We're setting aside time to do the thing that we delight in so that we could have rest. And we need that. And a lot of these things that I mentioned are great things. They're things we should do. But at the end of the day, all of those things bring temporary rest. All of those things bring temporary rest. Like, how long does that last? You know, if you've cleaned the house and you have toddlers, they get about three hours maybe, if that. You know, Kelsey's shaking her head, two hours. <laughs> Minutes, okay, sorry. <laughs> and if you have all three of them over, you give up. <laughs> so, um, but all of these things, even if it's a weekend in the mountains, what, how many of us stress out about Monday, that Sunday night? You know, even if it's me time, if you're not a social person and you gotta be in an environment where there's social interaction, that rest is over pretty quickly. So all of these things that we do, all of these kind of pseudo-Sabbaths that we have are just temporary rest. But we delight in those things. And I think what Sabbath is trying to tell us, what, what, this, uh, what I'm calling a seven-day pattern of stopping, uh, the word sabbat is in parentheses, uh, the seven-day pattern of stopping to make the day holy so we can rest. The, the, this pattern that God has given us is because he's offering rest that's not temporary. He's offering rest that is eternal. And he's offering rest that we can experience today, that we can enjoy today if we stop, set aside time for him, and he's promising to grow our delight in him so that we can find rest. So I kind of want to unpack that, 
that definition a little bit. We're going to, me and Anna were joking about Bible drill this morning. I don't know, does anyone else remember that? That's like a cheesy, you grew up in the, yeah, uh, Carrie raised her hand. So there was a contest where you would stand there in a line and they'd they'd say a, uh, a reference and you have to open it up and like put your finger there and then they would walk and like judge you to make sure you were like in the right spot. It was like so cheesy. Um, but I did that in, uh, yeah, right, <laughs> Emily's like, <laughs> I did that in like this big mega church I went to in like grade school or whatever, and if you won, I kid you not, state, uh, you could go, right, <laughs> so you could, you could go to like whatever theme park was in Texas, and I remember a couple times I got, a, I was motivated by the glory of the theme park, I was gonna, I don't care, I don't care what was in the Bible, I was like, give me to that theme park, uh, but we're gonna... <laughs> I say, I say all that because we're going to sort of peruse through quite a bit of scripture this morning, and, and there's probably going to be uh, a handful of questions, some thoughts, but I would just uh, kind of encourage you uh, to not get too hung up on some of the specifics of the passages as we like walk through the stuff, uh, but sort of w- work with me. Uh, if you have any questions, you can write it down. I'm happy to talk about those at lunch after the, after the service. But let's start in Genesis. Um, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, is kind of the first time that this idea of Sabbath comes up. He says, thus says, thus says the heavens and the earth, or, or sorry, thus, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested, it's that word Sabbath, he stopped, he stopped on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God stopped, he rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And I'll try to help us a little bit, but uh, there's two Hebrew words that come up for rested pretty often. Um, They're different and they have different kind of uh, nuances uh, in the original language, but most of our Bibles translate both of them rested. So it's gonna be a little bit to try to follow that. But in this particular section here, we're talking about sabbat, we're talking about stopping, God stopped and rested, and then he made the day holy. He made the day holy. He, he set apart this day as a special day. And let's think about that for a second. There is no fall. Adam and Eve are created. Sin isn't in the world. God doesn't need to take a break. It's not like he was strained. And he needed to sort of recover his strength. So he said, okay, well, six days of speaking existence into the world is enough. I gotta chill out on the seventh. Jesus actually tells us that the Sabbath was made for man. So God is, begins in Genesis by, by doing something that's made for us. He's doing something that's made for us. How much do you think we would need to find rest if there wasn't sin in the world. Like, not that much, right? I mean, most of the things that stress me out come from broken, fallen, sinful things in the world. But God, from the very beginning, is setting up this pattern where Adam and Eve, without sin, would work, and then on the seventh day, there'd be a special day for them to rest and to make it holy. And what God is doing right there is he's showing us a couple of things. He's showing us that ultimate rest, even before the fall, ultimate delight and joy was found in him. He's resting in himself. 
Other, other place in the Bible, it references God refreshing himself. He's looking at everything that reflects his glory, his beauty, his majesty, and he's saying, this is rest. And he's doing that so that we would learn that, so that Adam and Eve would learn that from the very beginning, that ultimately even Adam and Eve, without sin, without anything broken in the world, were to find ultimate rest in the very presence of God. And we think about what they did. It's actually, so it's, one, it's telling us that that rest is found in God. Two, it's actually showing Adam and Eve that there's something better. There's actually something better than what they had in the garden. There was work to be had and there was a future rest that was even better than the work that they had in the sinless garden. There was this idea of a future rest and think about it this way. If you, haven't, uh, if you were in our leadership intensive, we talked about this a lot. But Adam and Eve had no sin. If that was the most perfect place to be, how could they have screwed it all up? It broke. I mean, the fall is like the most understated problem in the, the history of mankind. It wasn't a permanent state of rest in the presence of God. But that's what this, this, he's making this Sabbath from the very beginning before there's even sin in the world because he's pointing forward. He's pointing Adam and Eve forward to a state in his presence that's even more amazing, more glorious than the garden itself. And if, if Adam would have crushed the head of the serpent, if Adam would have spoken the, the, the true words of God and corrected the things that were going on in the fall, he could have... He could have ascended to that higher state. He could have eaten of not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not the tree that caused the fall, but he could have eaten of the tree of life and entered into the Sabbath rest that God was displaying for him at the very beginning of creation. That's what he could have done. Revelation at the end kind of gives us a, a bookend for this. In Revelation 22, verses one through four, we kind of get some of these themes that come back again says, then the angel showed me the river of water, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life. This is the, the tree that's represented in the garden. The tree of life now with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. And what will his servants do after partaking in the tree of life? They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Face to face, eternal, permanent communion with God. Rest. Because they delight in, in being in the very presence of God himself. This is what God is communicating to us communicating to Adam and Eve in the Sabbath before sin enters the world. And we know it kind of goes downhill from there. So I want to look at Genesis 4 real quick. God promises this glorious Sabbath to Adam and Eve. The fall happens. And we get an interesting beginning with Cain and Abel. They actually can't, they can no longer get to the tree of life 
because there's a flaming sword. And that, that kind of points us towards a sacrificial system. They have to, before they can partake and, and be in the presence of God and enjoy the Sabbath rest, the sacrifice has to happen. But in chapter four of Genesis, he says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And we kind of know what, what happens after that, right? They bring an offering to God. It doesn't go so well. And we get the first murder in the Bible. There's, there's, there's hatred there. There's brokenness there. But think about this. They're already bringing a sacrifice to God at the very beginning. And you say, well, what does that have to do with rest? Look at what he says in verse 3. It says, in the course of time, in the course of time, that's how our English version translated it. More literally, that could be translated, or maybe another way to translate that is after the days. After the days, they showed up to sacrifice at the same time, coincidentally. And there's no other use of this phrase in, in all of the Bible. There, there is a phrase for seasons. There's a phrase for weeks. There's a phrase for uh, months. Like there's, there's lots of specific ways we can designate time. After the days, they come to worship. And more than likely, Cain and Abel showed up to sacrifice on that special day that was set apart for the Lord. Here they are, setting apart time, stopping their work, whether in the field or uh, uh, whatever, out trying to get animals, and they're bringing their sacrifice to the Lord after the days. So, so there's this idea, even after creation, that there's a rhythm, there's a regular rhythm of stopping, setting aside time for the Lord so that they can find rest. And we know that that didn't work so well for Cain. Um, and there was a murder. It's interesting too, another uh, sort of seven day pattern that shows up is Noah after the flood. When he, uh, they're stuck because the waters have receded, but they don't know if they can leave yet. They send out the bird and they want to see if the bird comes back with the greenery or doesn't come back. They send out the bird, he comes back. Guess how long he waits before he sends out the next bird? Seven days. <laughs> Waits seven days, sends out the bird again. There's, there's already this pattern of, of, of taking seven days on the seventh day to set it apart specifically for the Lord. So that Noah, whose name is Nuach, which, which, which actually is where we get the word rest from, which I think is interesting. I don't know, I may have had that in here. Um, yeah, Genesis 5, 28. They name him that. Because they're looking for rest. He says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or rest from our work and from the painful toils of our hands. And this, this is the idea of, of, the, of the refreshing, of the delight, of they're looking for that, that just like ugh, ugh, rest. The, not the rest of stopping, of sabbat. This is the rest of like, of joy, of, of relaxing. And they're like, this is the guy. 
God has promised this future rest. Adam and Eve messed it all up, but he gave us a promise that a guy will come, a Messiah will come, a person will come and crush that head of the serpent and give us the rest that's been promised from the very beginning. And so Noah shows up and they're like, here it is, this is the guy, you know? And I think it's kind of funny because we have a lot more to go before the guy shows up. But they, were, they believed in the promises of God and they, and they thought that he would bring someone to bring rest. So we have sin that's complicated this idea that we would be able to find rest. We can no longer do the work to take of the tree of life to enter into the eternal rest that was promised from the very beginning. Only Adam and Eve could do that before the fall. So this is where God steps in. In the history of God's people, God steps in to begin to do the work himself. Look at Exodus 16. He's determined to bring his people to that rest. And he wants to remind them of that. He's reminding them of this future rest in Exodus 16, in the sort of the way the story goes, the people have been enslaved for 400 years. They've been rescued out of their slavery. And God is promising a future rest for them that's actually the promised land. They're, they're, they're sort of on this journey. They're actually going to experience God at Mount Sinai and get the Ten Commandments. They haven't gotten all that stuff yet. But they're on this journey to go have that, that rest that they're looking for in the promised land. And even before the Ten Commandments, God wants to get this routine of helping them stop and set aside time to trust that God will provide, to stop what they're doing so that they could enjoy and experience that rest that God gives them today. Look at verse four in chapter 16. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not, whether they will obey my rules. Again, this is before the Ten Commandments. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So he's just saying, when you, I'm gonna pro miraculously provide bread from heaven from you, but I want you to gather more on the sixth day so that you can stop working, set aside time for me, and enjoy the rest that I provide on the seventh day. Look at verse 22. It says, On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. He's providing for them. Even before the Ten Commandments, he's saying, I'm giving you this rhythm that I'm providing for you. I'm giving you this rhythm, rhythm of working and resting because I want you to set this aside a time for me so that you would look forward to the rest that I have for you. So you would enjoy the rest that I have for you. Amen. So now we get into some more of the specifics. We get into the Ten Commandments. We talked a little bit about that last week. And there's a couple of things that come up when God tells us about this pattern of working and resting that I thought would be helpful. Exodus 20. I'll read verses 8 through 10. 
Look at what he tells them to do on this day. Verse eight says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. Again, this is set aside to the Lord. Stop and set aside for the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Saying, don't take a break and force others to work for you. In 11, he says, for in, why, why should I do this? Because in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and stopped and rested on the Sabbath day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. He's like, do this because remember what God did at the very beginning was pointing towards a future rest that was greater than anything that Adam and Eve could have. And I, and I think... Cole kind of touched on this a little bit on his sermon, where even when they enter the promised land, David is saying, no, there's another rest. There is a rest that's yet future that we, that we haven't, have yet to see fully realized. And he's saying, I want you to remember the Sabbath. I want you to consider this rule because I want you to stop doing what you're doing and see what God did because he's pointing us towards a future rest, a more glorious rest, a, something that, that helps us delight and take joy in him so that we can be face to face with our God. So that we could finally have that, that nuach, that, that peace, that, that refreshment, that, that strength that comes from the rest that comes from God. He brings up another reason Another thing we should remember when he's kind of repeating the law in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 20, or sorry, chapter five, verses 12 through 15. It says, observe the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Um, this idea of holy, and I may have said this, I just wanna kind of clear this up. We don't use that word very often. Um, another way to say it is consecrate the day. Again, that's not a word that we use ever either. So when we say make something holy, when we say consecrate, we're, just, we're, we're taking something sort of plain and then setting it aside for a special use. Um, the, the cups in the temple were consecrated, were made holy. It was just a cup. It wasn't like a magical cup. But now the cup is set aside specifically for use in the temple. It's, a whole, it's now holy. It's now consecrated. So when he's saying make the day holy, he's saying there's a lot of great things you can do but one out of every seven days, I'm asking you to consecrate it, to make it holy, to, to set it aside as specifically used to the Lord. So he says, set this day aside as holy to the Lord. Six days you shall labor, and he goes and he kind of repeats this idea of not making others labor for you. But then he gives another reason. In verse 15, he says, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. He's saying, don't just remember what God promised before the fall. The fall happened. And since we're, we're all enslaved to sin, they were literally enslaved to Egypt. And he's saying, I supernaturally rescued you out of that. I rescued you out of that slavery so that you could be my people so that I could be your God. And so I want you to remember, I want you to set aside time to me so that you can remember not only what I have promised for you in the future, but what I've done for you. Remember that I've rescued you from your slavery. I like what um, 
Solomon says in 1 Kings, not a um, passage we probably go to a ton. 1 Kings chapter 5, he's talking about this rest, this idea of things have stopped so he, he can have rest. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, I'll read that. It says, now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king of the place of his father. For Hiram always loved David, and, and Solomon went, sent word to Hiram, you know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. Kind of just some historical context here. David was like their favorite king. David wrote a lot of the Psalms. But David still had a lot of a battle and wars and things he had to fight. There's a lot of family drama. We're just reading through some of that in 2 Samuel right now. It tears her up. Uh, it was just rough. David didn't really have rest in that sense. And so now Solomon, his son, brings in the, he is the most wealthy. He is the most worldwide known king. He has the most legit kingdom. And so he's sitting there and he, and he has been given this rest. And look at what he says in verse 4. But now the Lord my God has given me rest. It's the word where Noah's name comes from. This like strengthening rest, a satisfying rest. He's given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. That's nice to say. And so I intend to build a house for the name of my Lord my God, as the Lord said to David my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. So this is sort of like the climax of the story in some ways from, from slavery in Egypt, pulled out of that slavery, given God's rules, experiencing God's presence, going into the promised land, fighting all the enemies around so that they can set up a kingdom. And now the most wealthy, the most wise, the, the, the greatest king that, that Israel ever saw in their nation is sitting here saying, now I have rest. Now everything has, I can stop and I have rest. And, and what, it's interesting that the thing that he goes to do is then build the temple. And the temple is, is the physical manifestation of what it means to be in the very presence of God. Which is, which is a little tiny picture, even in Israel, the temple is a little tiny picture of what was promised in the garden before the fall. This idea that we would be in the very presence of God, to eat of the tree of life, to be face to face, to, to, to actually have the eternal rest that Adam and Eve never had in the, in the everlasting presence of God himself. And so now he's like, well, I'm gonna build the temple. And I think we kind of, we know that this is another, I mean, this is another awesome picture of the rest that God provides, but Israel is not what it was anymore. The, the, the nation disintegrated and was taken off into captivity. It's just another example of, of rest that's not eternal. It's rest that's temporary. It was good. It's what God promised. It's actually, in this situation, it's pointing us to something greater. And we're about to get to the New Testament and sort of see some of that. But this is still temporary rest. This is still rest that's not forever. This is still rest that you have to keep up and keep doing and keep setting stuff aside and, and keep building or, or whatever it is. You know, the, even in Solomon's day, there was problems that he had in his family and the rest that he had there wasn't, wasn't rest that he even had in his own lifetime. So then we get to Matthew. Matthew. 
talking about this idea of Sabbath rest. It's a, a seven-day pattern of, of stopping to, to make the day holy so that we can rest. And Jesus shows up on the scene. Matthew 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read? Don't you know your Bibles? Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him and how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? They do work. He's, he's telling him, he's like, this is, he knows, just like with murder, he knows that the, the, the reason why the Sabbath rule exists is so that they would delight in God. He knows that the reason why the Sabbath rule exists is because it's reminding us what God has accomplished for us. It's pointing us forward to what God is gonna do. And here Jesus is, he's actually, in, God in the flesh, everything the temple was pointing towards is right there, standing in front of them. His disciples have devoted their lives to what Jesus is doing. And the, the Pharisees are complaining about like what is or isn't done on the Sabbath. And he's calling them out for that. He's like, that's not the point. The point is that they would delight in me. The point is that they would set aside time so that they could find rest in, in everything that I'm working to accomplish. And it's fascinating what he says right after that. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And you're like, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about the Sabbath. He says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. The, the, the temple was the, the picture. The temple was the, the thing on earth that taught us how to be in the presence of God. The, the temple was the thing on earth that the Sabbath was, was celebrating every week or uh, in the old covenant, they had Sabbaths for all kinds of things. They had a ton of different feasts and things that were sort of added on within the Mosaic covenant. But they're doing all of these Sabbaths because they're looking forward to the very presence of God. They're looking forward to a, a sacrifice that would actually dissolve the, the brokenness between Adam and Eve, not the sacrifice of animals happening in the temple, but the sacrifice of, of the Messiah, of Jesus himself. And he's saying everything that the temple and the Sabbath is all about, that's meant to be in the very presence of God for all eternity, he's like something better than that is standing right in front of you. And you're saying, hey, why aren't you, why are you picking stuff off the grain on the Sabbath? He's like, you missed the point. Everything that's done, everything in that, that law, everything that's happening around the temple is pointing to me and you're complaining about something that even in the law isn't wrong anyways. You're missing the boat. I think it's fascinating we have this seven-day pattern where we look forward to on the seventh day, it's a day that's set apart, where we look forward to this future rest. This future rest that 
God has been promising from the beginning. And it kind of racked my brain for a while. I was like, why did Jesus have to be dead for three days? Um, why not just like two days? Why not one day? Why not six days? And he brings it up even with, with uh, Jonah. He says, You'll, I'll only give you the sign of Jonah and this idea that Jonah's in the belly of the well for three days. It's a kind of very specific thing. He died on the sixth day. He was in the grave on the seventh day. And he begins the new creation now on the eighth day. Now, the beginning of the new creation is here. Now, as Christians, very early, from, from by biblical times, from scripture, and we can kind of go into some of the details of this if you have questions in the Q&A, are all of a sudden taking their one out of seven days and instead of doing it at the end of the week, they're celebrating, they're celebrating this, this future rest that's promised. They're celebrating the, the rescue that we've come out of from slavery on the first day of the week. On Sunday. When the new creation began. When, when finally mankind, everything that was promised in Genesis to Adam and Eve that they failed at achieving, now the second Adam has eaten from the tree of life on the eighth day, has risen again, and has brought mankind for the first time into this eternal rest. Amen. And now you and I are united to that. We're not united to Adam's failure. We're united to Jesus' resurrection now on the first day of the week where we begin the new creation. So this brings us to Hebrews chapter 4, the one we talked about a few weeks ago. Where we remember more of that rest. Verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should be seen to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. I don't want to re-preach um, all of Cole's sermon. But he's looking back to that time where Israel was brought out of slavery and was looking forward to a future rest, a temporary one in the, in the land. And he's, he's making the point that they did not, that particular generation did not enter that rest because they didn't have faith. They weren't united to Jesus, the one who's brought in the new creation. There, there, there was no belief in the promises of God. But then he goes on to say, in verse 11, so we've entered that rest in our union with Jesus, but he goes on to say, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. I started with the last verse I wanted to read. Verse 9, let's go back. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. 
Forever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now let us strive to enter that rest. There remains, there's actually some interpretations of that word. It's another one of those words that's like only used one time, so it's like really hard to like figure out exactly what it's meant. But there's some Bibles that say there remains a Sabbath keeping. There remains a Sabbath keeping. There's, there's, there's action in that word that's not sort of brought through as we, as we translate it here, or just a Sabbath rest. There remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. Why would there remain a Sabbath for us? Why would we need to have a seven-day pattern of stopping and setting aside time for the Lord so that we can find rest in him? Because Jesus has ascended. He has entered that rest. He, he's completed his work as God completed his on the, on the seventh day. God was done. He rested. Jesus is done. He is in the presence of the Father Resting, He's ruling and reigning. and He's on the throne that was promised to Adam and Eve. He is now there. He's done. But you and I are still here. You and I are looking forward to a better rest. You and I are, are still looking forward. We, we have yet to experience the full fulfillment of of being seen as the new creation and being in the very face-to-face presence of God and eating of the tree of life and enjoying his presence forever. We're not there yet. We're looking forward to that. We can't wait for that. Life is a drain sometimes. This is why we need rest. And so there remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. We, we you and I, still have to deal with the fall you and I are united to Christ who his work is done. He's sitting there and the certainty of us getting to that rest are 100% because of what he's done. But we're not there yet. God is saying we are continuing this seven-day pattern, stopping and, and setting aside a day for the Lord so that we could find that rest today. And it's not about what we do. It's not about whether we're picking grain off the things or not, you know, uh, it's not about the, the particulars of what's happening. God is saying, I've given you this rule and if you delighted in me, if you really enjoyed my presence and who I am, you would Sabbath. You would remind yourself of those things. And I was trying to think of like a good practical way to work that out. What does that mean? Does that mean I go to church every Sunday? I think the answer to that is a little bit complicated, but this is a great place to set aside time to stop whatever it is we're doing, to stop thinking about where we're gonna go this afternoon, to stop thinking about stuff that's stressing me out, to stop thinking about relationship things that are going on, friends, to stop, set aside some time to consider God so that we could find rest so that we could actually have that peace. So I thought of three things. How do we do Sabbath? Stop, set aside, and remember. And this is the shorter part of the sermon, so going through all of that, I knew it was going to take a little while. <laughs> three things we can do. We have to stop. Like, that's the, where the word comes from. Cease. Stop. And some of us, some of that means we just have to stop working. 
That's what I want to do. I want to do stuff all the time. God's saying, stop. I've given you six days to do all the things. Stop. (laughs) Some of us that might be thinking about how we travel. Some of us that might be thinking about sleep. (laughs) I wrote down, stop cleaning. (laughs) Stop planning. Whatever it is we do on the other six days of the week, God is saying, stop. Just stop and set aside. Uh, In our definition, I said, make the day holy, but we kind of get the idea. We're setting aside time. We're setting aside a day for God. And I think that's different for all of us. What does it mean for you to set aside time for God? That's going to look differently when you have kids in the home than when you live by yourself, than when you're married. What does it mean to set aside time for God? I think one of the ways this kind of plays out for me is I want to read and study and do all the things as it relates to my job that I do as a pastor the other six days of the week, and I don't. On Sunday, I don't do those things. I set those things aside, and I listen to a podcast about the Lord that I want to listen to, that I'm interested in, or I, I read and study something that has no direct impact on what's going on in the week. I try really hard to ignore my Monday to-do list and have sort of structured how I do that so I don't think about that on Sunday. On Saturday, I'm actually rearranging some things so I can intentionally stop thinking about work and just put set aside time for the Lord. So I can set aside things that are specifically for him in a way that they're not for him in the other six days. So we can stop. We can set aside our time for him in a way that's different. I think for some families, maybe that, that, maybe that means taking some time for song in a way that you wouldn't do the other six days. For some of you, it might be just setting aside some time to journal and to pray and to think about things in your heart as it relates to the Lord that maybe you don't do the other six days of the week. But there's a lot of different ways we can set aside time for the Lord. And then remember, stop, set aside, and remember. I think this is important because this is how uh, these things are talked about in the Old Testament. We can remember that there's a promised future eternal rest where we will be in God's presence forever. Amen. Where we will have what Jesus is enjoying in heaven today. But we can also remember that we've been rescued from that. God has brought us out of slavery, united us to Christ, and ensured and guaranteed that you and I would end up enjoying that rest. We can remember that. Those are, those are the things that kind of come up in the Ten Commandments. And the other thing I thought was really interesting is Jesus said that he is the bread from heaven. We can, we can remember all the other things that God provides for us. All the other things that come straight from our, our Heavenly Father six days a week all the blessings, all the things that he gives us. We can remember those things and at the end of the day, we can say, you know what? Those are wonderful things and I think in the context of Israel, literally food coming from the sky. Provision from God is a wonderful thing but the ultimate provision that God has given to us that we can remember is Jesus himself. We can remember who we are in Christ. We can stop. We can set aside time. And we can remember. 
couple of caveats. Um, if you read our confession online, it spells this out a little bit as well, very helpful. Um, we all don't live the same life. Some of us work for masters that don't care about the Sabbath. So we're required to submit to them. God calls us to that. Sometimes they're acts of necessity is the, the way that talks about it. I think about all of our um, medical students. People don't stop getting hurt on Sunday. We're, 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 it's, it's an act of necessity to care for those who are in need. So that there's things that God, God knows that he's saying, I want you to delight in me. I want you to find rest. I want you to enjoy who I am. If someone is suffering and needs help, help them. Do something about that. So there's these ideas of, of sort of acts of necessity that, that, that make it difficult sometimes to stop and set aside and remember. There's also acts of mercy. Jesus healed a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. He says, this, this is the idea is that, that we are, it set, if we're setting aside time for the Lord, sometimes that means doing things for him that we don't do six days out of the week. There's a lot of people that set aside time to show up this morning to make sure that this could happen. We don't do that Monday through Saturday. That's, that's an act of mercy that's for the Lord, that's for the building up of the body. That's, a, that's an action, that, that's something we can do to build each other up. That's, a, that's something that we can do to, to consider others. That's something that we can do. We can set aside that for the Lord. So I think that's something that God would encourage on the Sabbath. I want to end with Isaiah 58, kind of where we started. Because so I think that's a really powerful verse as it relates to the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a rule. It's one of the commandments. It has yet to find its true fulfillment in all of us as we look forward to being in the presence of God. And I think we like to hand things over to the Lord because he is the Lord, except maybe our time. That's kind of important to me. You know, I gave him a four hours this morning. He should be happy with that. But he's asking for a day. And he's not even asking. He's commanding. It's his rule. He's saying, this is the day that I ask, I'm telling you to set apart so that, but it's so you can find rest. Not just temporary rest that I need to do over and over again so you can enjoy more of the eternal rest that comes from him. And I kind of begun by saying if we delight in who God is, if we genuinely delight in him, we will go to him for rest. We will set aside time for him. All the things we set aside time for right now that give us rest, we delight in those things. And those things are great. You have six days to do those things. Enjoy those gifts that God has given you. But look at what he says in Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14, which is fascinating because a lot of these chapters are, are looking forward to um, the new covenant. But he says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, if you treat it for what it is, if you consider this rule that God has given for what it really is, something he's given to us so that we could delight in him. 
If you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own way or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, if you take my Sabbath seriously, look at what he promises us. Then you shall take delight in the Lord. What a wonderful promise that is. Who doesn't want more delight in God himself? He is always with us. He is ever present. And I would love to delight in him more on a Tuesday at three when I don't, I'm not even thinking about him. I would love to delight in him more when I'm preparing on Saturday for setting aside time for him on Sunday. I would love to delight in him more. And he doesn't say probably you'll delight in me more. He says, if you take my Sabbath seriously, you will delight in me. And that's what faith, faith is. We trust in what he said. We believe that what he said is better than what we think. And he brings us from the ugly of our sin to the beauty of Christ. And just like every other rule, something will change and will truly delight in him. If we see his Sabbath as something we should delight in. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that Jesus' work is finished. As your work was finished on day seven, it's finished. Help us remember that today. Lord, you have done something that has not been done in the history of creation through your son, Jesus. Through his resurrection. Through his spirit being poured out on a Sunday. United us to him so that we could today enjoy some of that rest that Jesus has accomplished. But you've sort of told us how we can do that. Help us trust you in that so that we would delight more in you because you are with us, not temporarily. You're with us to the end of the age. Amen.